Hello, hello, and welcome to the Black Women Working Podcast. We are joined joining you today with a very special episode. It is another industry insider. It's Chantel here. So some of you may already guess it is the teacher's edition. And I am am so looking forward to this episode. And before we launch in just a little bit of housekeeping for our new listeners, um, you can find us on the socials using the handle at bwwpodcast.uk on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on our website, www.blackwomenworking.com. And we always love to hear from you guys. So if you've got a group of industry insiders that you'd like to join and chat about your experience in your field, you can email us on blackwomenworkinguk at gmail.com. So without much further ado, because I'm just so excited to be here with my peers and talk about teaching and education in the UK I'm going to get us started so ladies who have we got here today please introduce yourself hiya I'm Stephanie hello everyone I'm Lenisha hi everybody I'm Jamila lovely lovely right so we've got four black women in the chat in the room on the pod um and I don't know I'm not the maths teacher but Boy, in terms of the stats of late, I think these statistics are from around 2020. According to the Department of Education, um, only 7.6% of state schools in England, um, teachers in state schools from England, are of ethnic minority background compared to 25% of pupils. And if you break that down in terms of Black and Caribbean teachers, we make up 2.5% 2.5% of the teaching workforce um, and the stats get even lower when we look at senior leadership so we are actually in the presence of um, two senior leaders the one percenters the one percenters <laughs> and what we'll do is I'll start by asking um, Steph, Lanisha and Jamila to tell us a little bit about um their background in teaching, how long they've been in, and and the route that they took. So, Steph, would you like to kick off? I can. Um, Oh, wow. So I have been in teaching for 18 years. Um, It feels like my entire life, but I didn't go straight from university into education. I was initially um, a project manager in a translation agency because my degree was French and linguistics. Languages was always my passion at school. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to go and be a translator. Turns out you have to have real skill to be a translator. I didn't, you know, just skill I didn't have. So I went into working as a project manager, did that for a couple of years. And it wasn't really for me. I loved the company I worked for. It was an awesome place to work. Great, great people. But I was just so bored and I just didn't care. I didn't care about what I was doing. And I'd always kind of, um, had connections with young people in some way, shape or form. You know, at uni, I mentored primary school, um, secondary school, I mentored primary school aged kids. So it was something that I'd always kind of had in me. One day I woke up and said, I'm going to be a teacher. And the rest is history. I did the graduate teacher program. So I was in school from pretty much day one. And I knew that that's the way 
that I needed to learn. Like it wasn't going to work for me kind of sitting in lectures, being taught how to teach. I wanted to kind of try, fail, try again, which boy, did I try and fail a lot of times in the classroom, but it really just felt like home being, um, being in school and, and being a teacher. I, I had really good experiences of school. And I think part of why I got into it is that I wanted and I still do. I want other young people to have really good experiences of school as well. Like I loved going to school. Um, and I was that kid that sat at the front with all their equipment out. Pick me teacher. <laughs> I was like full on nerd. <laughs> but it, yeah, so it's, it, it felt really natural. I love being in the classroom, even though I'm, you know, I'm not in the classroom as much as I am now. I'm currently a deputy head teacher in a very big school in South London. It's like 2,200 students. Um, and I'm responsible for equality and inclusion. So that's kind of where I am at the moment. And that's how I, how I got into teaching. And yeah, 18 years. It's well mad done, to girl. think about. Well, done. I'm going to come back to your role in um, equality and inclusion in a moment. Lanisha, how about you? See, so my story is the total opposite, if I'm honest. So I know I've always wanted to teach, but my primary experience was not the greatest. I didn't really enjoy school. You know, I was a bit of a mouthy, a mouthy um, girl. So, you know, I was in trouble a lot and I didn't really, you know, consider to consider myself, you know, academic almost and you know although I always wanted to teach I just didn't see myself there and my parents would say that typical thing like you know she's not being challenged enough challenged enough and that's why she's you know behaving in the way that she was and you know I just really didn't enjoy school and if I'm honest with you it was because I didn't really like my teachers so as cliche as it may sound I just I almost wanted to be the teacher that I didn't have, which sort of led me into the profession. So I um I didn't do my PGCE until I was about 29, 30. And that was mainly because of, you know, my family's situation, had a young family at home, and I really wanted to prioritize them. So during that time, I worked as a TA, absolutely loved it. I was in a fantastic school, wonderful team. You know, I would have happily remained a TA forever, but, you know, the salary didn't really reflect the lifestyle that I sort of envisioned for myself. So, you know, I thought it best, you know, it was time to move into teaching. And yeah, so eight years on, here I am. I am currently year six teacher and I am the head of PSHE and pupil empowerment. I love it. I love it. There's a few themes to pick up there. I didn't know we had a primary teacher in the room. So wonderful in that respect. Um, and also notably, I think we've spoken about it on the pod. I'm usually the historian who has the episode reference, but a late starter, as it were, which is also really um, inspiring for some. Um, so I'm going to come back to that. But um, Jamila? So I actually, similar to Lanisha, had a, had a pretty awful school experience. And my parents actually remortgaged their house to send me to an independent school because it just didn't seem like I was going to get where I needed to get when it came to my education. Um, so I actually didn't know 
that schools like the schools that we work in existed because from the end of primary school through to senior school I went to an all-girls private school um, and again I really didn't enjoy school I didn't find it to be a place where I could be myself I felt that I was quite apologetic about who I was I was definitely the minority um, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll never forget my dad used to come and collect me and I'd be like, turn down that soca music, you know, embarrassed, you know, <laughs> really embarrassed when he used to collect me from school. So if you would have told me that I would be a teacher, I would have told you you're lying. Absolutely. I finished university. I did a history degree. I moved to Antigua, which is where my mom's from. And I was managing hotels in the Caribbean. Um, I volunteered um, at what was called the Boys Detention Centre, which was where I got to actually spend time with young offenders. And that was when I felt whole. Um, And when I had my daughter and came back to London, my mum said, you should be a teacher. And I laughed at her and I ignored her. One evening I got a phone call. She'd started a teach first application for me. Um, And... (laughs) So they had called to kind of hurry up the application and we started talking about educational disadvantage. And and that was something that really resonated, finished the application that evening, got a place um, as a Teach Firster. And in that period, so I got my offer in about October. So it was for the next academic year. So I decided to find some work as a teaching assistant, similarly. And I just absolutely loved it. I got it at a local school. Um, And my offer had been for a history place, but very, very quickly, the school wanted to keep me and they wanted me as an English teacher because obviously you build more relationships because you see the kids more. Um, So some conversations were had and eight years later, um, I have moved from English teacher, head of year, um, assistant head teacher, DSL. Um, and shortly I will be starting a new role, which will be something completely different because actually I think when you're ambitious about being ahead and moving forward you don't want to be pigeonholed into that box that so many of us often are that you do behavior you do pastoral and so I now have a really exciting opportunity where I'm going to have the opportunity to support trainee teachers which is something that's very close to my heart you know I am a trustee at Teach First as well and I do think that actually it's teachers that can make a huge difference to children to the way they feel about themselves to the way they feel about their education so I'm really excited about that next step. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, there's only three of us. I I just want to be in the room of Black teachers, even though I'm a bit of a hypocrite, because those of you who have followed my story, I've recently left the classroom. So um, for myself, I would say I I decided at about the age of 16 that I wanted to work with young people I didn't know what capacity but what had happened is I'd fell out with a lot of friends along the way in year 11 and I thought the only reason that I'm one of the main reasons that I'm educationally successful other than my smarts was the adults in my life and I thought if I could be an adult in a young person's life then that could make a difference um so I graduated Whilst I was at uni, at college, I was a youth worker. Um, I'd worked in connections. That's how old I am. Careers advice um, and some young youth offending teams in my local area. Um, when I graduated, I actually worked for the education team for children in care. And the role or meeting young people in terms of youth work and, and that role was so transient in that 
you see them one day and you might not see them the next. And I thought, if I actually am going to make an impact, I need to be where kids are every day. And so I too trained through Teach First, um, given that one, I didn't really want to have to um, study again and being a lecturer who I was ready to hit the ground running. And two, I was very much aligned to teach versus ethos around um, disadvantage, working in disadvantaged schools to bring the very best. Um, so I started off in a school in Tower Hamlets for six years. Um, so the last of my 20s there, I entered motherhood there. And then I went on to a brand new school. So um, a startup where there was only one year group that nearly killed me that nearly made me left I actually left the profession without a job well I left and then got drawn back in um did a stint in another school in Wolven Forest and finished off at um a school that Steph actually was a senior leader at um in in again in Wolven Forest and after 12 years this year I woke up and thought I'm not sure if um I wanted to ask year 11, where's your pen two weeks before the exam? Um, and also, I just felt like my skills and what I have to offer, I wanted to extend beyond the classroom. So whilst by title, it's quite easy to say I'm a teacher. And I don't know, I don't know if I'll ever not say I'm a teacher, but um, I've recently left the classroom. So um, we've all got quite interesting stories in and obviously all really, really passionate. And I don't know if we're, we might have to do a part two. I can already feel it because I don't know if there's enough time in one episode. But um, there's a few things that I wanted to pick up. So both um, Jamila and Anisha have mentioned that they were TAs. And I'll throw out an interesting stat, which is currently um, there are around 53% of schools have um, BAME teaching assistants, but there are a quarter, over a quarter, 27% of schools in England that have no BAME staff at all. So we're not even talking about Black, we're, talk, we're talking about any ethnic minority. Um, and that's just so wild to me. It's so wild. I mean, you know, we're thinking, if we if we look at the demographics of the roles that black people play in schools and Jamila mentioned the whole idea of um, being pigeonholed into pastoral and behavioural roles and you know how do people how do I'm going to pose the question you know we know why we're here but how do people see black teachers in education what do you think that the narrative the view is both inside um, schools and outside anyone take the take floor off I mean for me, I know that the students and, and, and one thing you when you work with children, you, you know, children are very perceptive and they don't hold their tongue. So it's it's constantly something that they will talk about and that they will say. So in my school, there are a large amount of cleaners who are black, uh, kitchen staff who are black. Uh, a, a number of TAs and then very few as you get kind of higher up. And the students point it out. I actually um, brought a program into my school. You'd have probably heard of it, the Smiling Boys Project, where Kay Raffae, he's an amazing, amazing... Sorry, we love it. We <laughs> love it. We love it. And um, so actually one of his prerequisites is that um, as part of the project, you need to provide a male black uh, teacher from the school. We didn't have one. I, I sat in the room. We didn't have one. And actually the children 
in terms of their aspirations, you know, it's cliche, but you cannot be what you cannot see. And if every single day, five days a week, you're going into a place where the only people in those higher positions don't look like you, what message does that send to you? Never mind what you're offering them for careers development. Like, what are you showing them on a daily basis in an area where everybody around them looks like them, but they then go to this institution and nobody looks like them? What does that tell them? Even in terms of the curriculum that they're that they're digesting you know I'm an English teacher I have two books that I've worked with people just because I feel that in terms of the curriculum that children digest who's to say that there isn't value in stories about people who look like them written by people who look like them and come from the same places as they do and ultimately schools need to be making more of an effort to ensure that when they talk about aspiration and inspiration and motivation of their children that they are living it and not just talking about it because there's a huge difference. I also just want to want to add to that because Jamila's made like a really valid point about you can't be what you can't see. I think it goes further as well into governorship. So I, a year ago, I recently became a parent governor at my son's school. And it has kind of inspired me to apply to be a governor in another school. It's not like I don't have anything better to do, clearly. Right. <laughs> Just giving myself a work. But I swear to you, every time I'm around, you know, family, friends, I'm like, have you applied to be a governor yet? Have you applied to be a governor yet? Because it has to be at every level. And yes, I would like to see more than just one but one is a start. And like, we've got to kind of start shoehorning ourselves in, especially somewhere like London or Birmingham or Manchester, where there are large numbers of people that look like us and people from ethnic minorities. So it's, it's really important that we're in those positions of like decision-making. And the thing I've learned most from being a parent governor is the influence that governors have. And they really do. So I, I recently went to a governor's meeting at my current school. So I have to go in my role. And the questions that I, I have a lot of respect for this governing body because boy, do they hold us to account. So one of the big things at my school is, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, we're on an anti-racist journey and that started before I even joined the school. But they, they want to know. They're asking the questions. They're challenging. They're, they're saying, okay, but what does that mean? And what does it look like? And what's the impact going to be? And what will that look like for the kids, for members of staff, et cetera? So it, you're right about we need it at every level, but like also in that essentially the boardroom, because there, there you can really, governors can really hold school leaders to account on what it is they're doing, thinking and planning for those young people. And it, it's, it, it frustrates me that I, I don't know what it is about. I don't know that education draws enough of us in. And I don't I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's personal experiences of education or look, we see how teachers are undervalued. We see it in the news all the time. Everyone's got something to say. I, I, I'm constantly thinking about how do we recruit more people of the global majority into education? Because unless we're recruiting them, they're never going to get to that point where they're, they're even in senior leadership or even trying to be governors. And I think it's just something that's constantly on my mind. So anyone's got any thoughts, I'm up for it. Yeah, and I think I echo those sentiments as well. And it's it's almost like we are always seen as the disciplinarians. And it's like, why is this? And I actually sat with SLT because this current academic year, I found myself being, you know, behaviour lead. And I, I actually asked her why. 
why me? Like, why have you chosen me to fulfill this role? And she actually couldn't articulate an answer for me. And I said, well, you know, I do have a very well-behaved class. And yes, I do have a really positive presence around the school. But, you know, behaviour is not my sole purpose. And it's almost like we are given the most challenging classes. And it's, it's just become the norm. And I think subconsciously we find ourselves in these positions because we believe that we naturally fit there. And I don't think that should be the narrative. So for me, the question is, why are all the black teachers given the most challenging um, classes, you know, the black males are seen as the mentors and there's so much, we have so much more to offer to education. And like what you said, you know, change starts from the top. So we do need to be in these more inclusive roles where we're actually able to make a difference. You know that the point you make about black teachers being always shoehorned into behaviour, because it's, I chose to go down the pastoral route. I did the academic for a bit. And you know what I realised? When I look at the teachers who are the ones who lead on behaviour, they are often the best teachers. And this is what people fail to understand. I'm not good at behaviour because I shout at kids or kids are afraid of me. I'm good with behaviour because I'm a flipping awesome teacher and I'm passionate about my subject. The kids know that I will work hard for them. They know that I know my stuff and they know when they're good, I'll tell them. When they're screwing up, I'll phone their parents and tear them a new one. I know my stuff. I know my subject. I'm passionate about my subject. And actually, what I plan and put in front of them is worth them behaving for. And that is what people miss. And that's what they miss in the Black teacher. They see the Black skin, and they're actually not looking at the talent. Because every Black teacher I've ever met who is awesome at behaviour is a phenomenal teacher. And I'm in their class like, I wish you were my teacher when I was younger. And people miss that. And we need to start naming it. It's like, because we are good Fantastic. at behaviour because we're good teachers. It's the white teachers that are and good that at behaviour are been... good teachers. <laughs> and that would have been the ideal answer, you know, exactly what you've just said. That is what I would have liked SLT to say to me when I asked them, why me? Why have you chosen me for this role? That would have been ideal. But she literally just looked at me. Do you know what? Sorry, just for the audience who don't know, SLT, senior leadership team, so our head teachers, uh, deputy heads and assistant heads. I actually just, I could cry. No lie, like the passion, honestly. And I think like it's not an unusual tale to be told about black teachers being shoehorned into pastoral, into behaviour. And I think, Steph, you've definitely hit the nail on the head in terms of it's not about because I shout at kids all day. It's because they know what they're getting. I'm unapologetic about who I am and authentic about who I am. And I expect the very same from them. And I'd say to my, I call them my kids, they're my kids, man. I say to my kids, I don't ask of you anything that I haven't put in or I'm not willing to put in myself the standards match so when you come into my house my classroom my house my rules whatever's going on in here this is the tone I don't care what you do next door downstairs down the corridor when you're with me this is how it is and you know I say and and passion as a teacher is so important because I'm a social sciences teacher so I've taught designed delivered curriculums for five subjects 
one of which I only did a GCSE and I was head of geography for four years, the last four years of my career. And I did my GCSE this year with the kids as in I hadn't studied geography um, since I was 13. And on my exit, we had to turn down 130 kids who had chosen geography because of the passion, because they could see when I come in this room, when I'm with this teacher, I am guaranteed success. And I think like, you know, as much as there are so many pitfalls to education, we are here as, as four, just four, just four black women who are really, really powerful. And Steph, you mentioned, you know, the governor's holding you to account, like well, when we're doing anti-racist work, when we're, when we're raising standards, what does that look like? And I kind of want to just turn it on its head a little bit. And, and um, Jamila, you mentioned the, the Smiling Boys project, like what does it actually look like on a good day, on a feel my soul day on a I'm doing a great job removing the expletives like what does it feel like to be a black woman in school um I did want to pick up on something that Steph said actually in terms of the governor thing and that was just simply to say that I think we have a lot of work to do um we know that for years and years since I was at school and and I was born in the 80s we've talked about the underachievement of black Caribbeans particularly with a focus on boys. I don't think there's much out there with regards to Black Caribbean girls. And obviously, you know, I fall into that category. I would have fallen into that category. And for me, when I sit um, in the governor meetings, I always feel really positive when the governors start to ask those difficult questions. Because actually, when you're sitting around the table with a team who have devised whatever plans they've devised, and then they're, they're talking to it and they're saying, oh, well, you know, this is this and this is that. What you do need is those governors who are empowered enough and, and understand enough to say, well, actually, what are the statistics for this month? Out of the exclusions this month, how many of those are those, those groups that we've identified as the groups? Because actually, if the answer is always the same, then those governors then need to think about what they're going to do about it. And I think when we talk about having more people stepping forward into these roles, where is the support for them? Where is Because, because actually, we as a people in this country, Windrush generation, post-Windrush generation, we're apologetic. Generally speaking, we feel grateful to be in the room. We tend to be quiet. We tend not to ask those difficult questions. We tend not to even know that we need to ask them. So I guess my question would be, what can we as Black educators do to empower parents to step into those roles? Because actually, a lot of the time, again, you might look at the leadership team and say, oh, they don't represent the community. But actually, a lot of the time, the governors don't. Even the, the community governor and the, and the parent governor and the staff governor even, a lot of the time all that they can do is really reinforce that status quo. So that's what I wanted to say about that. In terms of on a good day, as a black woman in teaching, you know, I, I, I often feel like Beyonce, you know, it's a lemonade skit, you know, I'm walking through the playground, you know, I'm checking in with my students, you know, I'm, walk, you know, I'm asking about poetry, um, I'm checking for homework. And actually it's that idea about School for me has to be this place where we're preparing young people for their next step. So for me, I will never, ever, ever walk past a child in school wearing a do-rag. Why? Because what am I telling them about my expectations for them and where they're going? Like, I, I don't understand this thing where some staff feel like they can't question things that are not professional. School is a professional space. So if you are allowing children, because you don't want to, because you, you're culturally incompetent, 
and you are allowing children to do things that is telling them that, okay, well, I, I imagine after school, you're going to be on the block. You know, you're going to have your pants down. No, 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 no. I am stopping every single child and I'm reminding them that actually this is their dress rehearsal for what's coming next. And, you know, depending on whether your school has a sixth form or not, that, that, that may be even more important because actually I'm preparing you for college and you're going to be not up against the people you're in the classroom with, but up against other children who don't have a sixth form to go to. And actually we're really trying to prepare you. You dress well, you speak well, you understand the difference between me and that person over there. You don't call me fam, you call me miss. You say good morning to me, you, you know, because actually we're good, but we, we ain't that good. Why not? Because actually when you move on, you're not going to be calling people fam. That's embarrassing. You know, we're going to look at the culture and literature that you love, but also we're going to talk about Dickens. Why? Because when you go to university, they're going to be talking about Dickens and you're going to know that stuff. And so I think it's that idea about kind of being a person who encourages and supports who they are but also makes it clear that in terms of their success and where they want to go, no matter what sector, employers are all looking for the same thing. They're looking for good manners. They're looking for knowledge. They're looking for showing up on time, being presentable, being someone that you would want to be proud of and being an ambassador. I'm going to come back to that point. I'm going to challenge you, but I'd like to hear about a good day from the other ladies first. there shall I go um what's a good day for me do you know what because I I spend a lot less time actually in the classroom now because of being in leadership I still get such a buzz from teaching a good lesson and um the school that I was I've, I've just left was an all through school so actually I was teaching a lot of primaries I taught most of my classes were year five and year six which is has done wonders for my teaching practice, which often you don't get to focus on when you're in leadership. Everything's about leadership and kind of furthering your knowledge around the area that you're responsible for. But a good day for me is like when I walk into that classroom and there's just, there's a buzz and there's electricity in the air and the kids aren't afraid to speak French or Spanish and they're smiling and they're laughing and you know, they're, they're just fully engaged. And yes, there will be one kid that does the wrong thing, but when you challenge them, they respond appropriately. Like those, that's the thing that keeps me, keeps me afloat. It's like every day when I'm going through stuff that's challenging and I'm having to, yeah, because human beings are difficult and adult human beings are a trip, um, <laughs> that they, they're the ones that kind of bring me back to center, being in a classroom and planning a lesson. I love planning lessons. Um, and it's the thing I will do to avoid work that I have to do is, no, I'm going to plan a lesson because that's my happy place. Um, it, it, it's those moments where I'm in the classroom and it just feels like this is why I do what I do. And this is why I come to work is to be with young people and just inspire them in some way. And I suppose that what that then does is that carries me through the day. So when I'm going out and, you know, having to be challenged by some, you know, quite horrific safeguarding issue that's been been reported to me that keeps me afloat and that's almost like my self-care to kind of manage those those darker moments yeah it's definitely being in the classroom 
Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, I genuinely love to teach. It makes me so happy to be in the classroom. And although, you know, it's almost like nowadays teaching has become less and less of a focal point because there's so many, you know, admin tasks and other things to be getting on with. But, you know, actually teaching the children a really high quality lesson, you know, when, as you said, they're engaged, they're enthusiastic, they're asking questions, you know, the conversation is just flowing. Those are the things that really, really, make the job worthwhile and it's so rewarding in that the rewards are instant you don't have to wait you know you don't have to wait you just know when they've left that classroom they've had a good day they've loved your lesson you know and even if it's only momentarily it still happens in the moment so you know for me that is what it is yeah uh, the, the classroom such a such a such an interesting thing no you know like because you're on your own so much as a teacher you I say on your own and your own as an adult and the things that we hear and witness in the classroom like those those light bulb moments those are you serious moments like honestly if you haven't had the the, the pleasure of working in a classroom being in the classroom find your find your way in be a guest speaker be a teacher find your way in it, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful wonderful place um and so like, and I, and I guess that's exactly it. I think for me, and this is where I'm going to challenge um, Jem, for me, the joy of being a black teacher is being a black teacher. Just that, like, miss, miss, have you, have you, have you heard the new vibes cartel? Yeah. What do you know about that? Because you shouldn't be listening to that. Did you go carnival? Yeah. But, but you don't need to worry about that. Like, the, the whole idea that they can see me and it's almost like they ask you to sort of um, litmus check or temperature check your blackness. Like, is she, is she really? And so when we think about like the underrepresentation in education and some of the experiences that our parents, grandparents, and even our, some of ourselves have had, I just think there's like so much merit in, in showing up as who you are. And I struggle with and my challenge to Jem is like what and I've always said like what does it mean to be a black professional okay and this dichotomy between like there and there is a dichotomy dichotomy unfortunately between blackness and professionalism and you know I always say I'm bashment to boardroom I can code switch I do both right and and I think that's important and I'm However you hear me, however I, tic- uh, however I, t- uh, I articulate myself, imagine can't get the words out. Um, it might come with a little cockney twist on a day-to-day because I'm a proud East Londoner. And it might sound like I've just written, uh, written an article or, or my dissertation paper because that also happens. And I wonder slash worry about what the messages in school or how young people receive the message when we're telling them this is how you need to show up because this is the way the world needs to receive you this is what it means to be in the workplace this is how you have to dress this is how you have to be and that challenge for them in terms of developing their identity and and realizing that you can be from a council estate and you might fully well be on a council estate for a very long time with a good education and with a good job and be part of your community but also be part of something else without being like 
oh yeah she's really smart she's really articulate and um, she's not like the others because I don't want to be that I don't want to step into a boardroom and be like you're here because you're not like that I am fully like the others please understand that please understand that and so you know and I, I'll just bring in another point to, to as a speaking point because um Jamila you mentioned that you went to an independent school I'm currently um taking my boy through the 11 plus and, and my partner who had um not as great an experience in education as I did is like well if we're going to give him the best he has to be in that space as in independent or private school and I struggle I struggle with that as well because for me one on a social level I don't feel like education should be a commodity but two what does that mean for who my boy or my boys will be surrounded by every day in terms of developing identity so I guess like if it was posed as a question it's you know how what does it mean to cultivate a black child's identity in that they know who they are but they are ready for this working world um I think again it is about communication I think the first thing as teachers that we learn is don't make any assumptions about anybody's child that's the first thing um have those open conversations. It's not always an easy conversation, but I do think that supporting young people to be able to navigate those differences is key. So I actually um, arranged the UK's first ever Windrush Festival at my school, yeah? The reason I did that was because, as I said, I want them to understand I do not play about their education. We are not going to spend any time of the hour that I have with you talking through Bantu knots versus, you know, lace fronts we're not going to do that because this is your learning time and it's precious however after school at break time at lunchtime that's the opportunity for us to bring some of that in and to really celebrate so I think doing things like that so we had an event we had like calypso singers my grandparents were there they they came over not on Windrush but on a different boat uh the Antilles um and it's about the idea of being able to be clear with young people look you must be proud of who you are but you must keep certain things in check at certain times because you are um if you're if you're expecting to be able to say and do what you want during lesson time then then that's an issue and 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 it's also that thing about what you don't want is to be that adult who they come to expecting to have you know banter with at any given time because again what is that telling them about black professionals that they deserve less professionalism than than everybody else like I do think it's one of those things that is complicated, but we do have to navigate it. And and sometimes being a black teacher is navigating it together. And, and, you know, I think parents have a role to play as well, because for me, I have had some fantastic relationships with parents. I'm I'm thinking of a particular year 11 who finished um, last, last academic year, who came to me in year six from a unit. And I was told wouldn't make it through the first week. And the relationship that me and that young person's mother had, because she understood that I was not going to play about her son, about his education and his needs. And actually on the last day, he was prom king and she hugged me and I hugged her and she just said, thank you. And I said, thank you. Thank you for trusting me. You know, and I, and I do think it is a lot of people are scared to use that word love, but I don't think you can do the job well without that. You know, you you cannot you cannot work with young people, um, especially when it's about so much more than teaching a lesson and and not 
do it with love and grace and you know reciprocity as well you're learning they're learning the best teachers are, uh, know that they're learners as well so for me I think that in terms of private school I don't know what to say I had a horrific experience in terms of my identity um I am approaching 40 and I am only just learning how to um allow myself to be soft allow myself to be unwell um I am only just starting to demand that people treat me like a human being and a lot of that comes from the experience that I had as the only black girl in school so I'm getting a bit choked up because it was really hard it was really really hard and you know my daughter is year four year five now and I'm and I'm thinking what's going to happen next uh because as I said we talk a lot about black boys we don't talk about black girls other than child Q I haven't heard any talk about black girls and the experiences they have um so again I think it is about having those conversations with our children and knowing that we're sending them out into the world having prepared them as much as we possibly can um and getting to know the teachers that are going to teach them as well Can I can I jump in here as well? Because I think there's there's probably some similarities in in me and Jamila's experiences of of school. Because I, I didn't go to a private school, but I went to a grammar school. Me, my sister, and my cousin were one. It was at the time it felt like a massive school. It was eight hundred girls. Um, we were eight out of eight hundred. The fundamental difference for me was I started my secondary education in Cameroon, which is where my family are from. So I spent two years in a country where I wasn't black. I was from a tribe. So I was from Manyamen. There was no blackness. It was just, that's your tribe. That's where your parents are from, which really helped with identity. And then I came back here and went to a grammar school and lost a little bit of that. And it's really probably in my kind of like mid to late thirties that I've really started to kind of live in my authenticity and change some of my views around how we present ourselves. I talk a lot about the fact, you know, we, we talk, as a, particularly as a language teacher, I see how some languages are valued over others. So I'm constantly saying to the kids, but you are, bilingu- are bilingual in the same way that I'm bilingual. Actually, you're probably a better bilingual than me because you're fluent in Urdu and you're fluent in English. Yes, I'm fluent in French. I'm not fluent in Spanish. But you, you need to value that, the fact that you speak another language. And most people who aren't brown in this country don't speak another language. That in itself says something about your level of intelligence, brain capacity, that you can hold two different, two very different languages in your head and function in them and thrive in them. And it's, it's having those conversations that made me realize about, I, I was often told when I was younger, oh, you speak really well. And it isn't often until as an, as an adult that I started to see that that's actually an insult. I don't speak really well. I speak like someone who grew up in North London and went to a grammar school. Everyone at my school speaks like I do, black, white, Asian, whatever. This is how we sound. It's where I grew up. But I also have a really good friend who is hardcore Cockney, but one of the most intelligent women I know. She is so clever. Like, I think I'm clever, but she makes me look like a dum-dum. She is, she knows stuff about stuff. And, but she will be judged somehow as less intelligent than me because I have more of an RP accent than she does. And it just, I started to realize that my authenticity and my giving power to kids and my superpower as a black woman in education is, yeah, I've got my RP accent, but I'm constantly slipping into my West African accent as well, because that is also natural to me. 
I do it in meetings. I do it when I'm talking to kids. I do it when I'm talking to parents. Not one person has ever judged me less for it. And that's what I started to realize. The more authentic we are, the more others have to accept that's who we are. And we need to stop hiding ourselves. And I spent too long doing that. I'm not doing it anymore. So yeah, when you walk past my office, you're going to hear Afrobeats. You're going to hear Don Buller from Ivory Coast. You're going to hear rap music. You're also going to hear classical because I like all kinds of music. When you see films, you will see me watch the most embarrassing, cheesy rom-com. You will also see me, you know, watch something by Jordan Peele because we are not just one thing. We are, you know, we are really multifaceted. And I have, I have a real issue with the do-rag because it's something you go to sleep with so no, don't wear it outside your house. But that's, that's like my personal, <laughs> like, I'm like, I'll put it away. But I've, I've realized that our young people need to love and own who they are. And they have to see us love and own who they are and see us 360. Because the more we do it, the more people who aren't of the global majority will accept it and recognize that it's real and it's professional. And that's, that's, I feel really, really, really strongly about that more and more the older I get and the further I get in my career. Do you know what? I think what you said about really embracing your authenticity, Steph, is so key here. For me, I'm from South London, born and raised, and I'm so hyper aware of how I come across, you know, just how you speak, how you articulate yourself. Are you saying the instead of the, you know, just things like that constantly on the back of in the back of your mind you're always really really thinking about wow how do I say this how do I reframe this question so it doesn't come across as combative or argumentative or regressive and that sort of thing so um yeah I guess in the classroom it's about just finding balance and depending on the culture of your classroom you should be able to sort of adapt yourself there are there will be moments where you can have that banter with your pupils and that's not necessarily a bad thing you know, I think children, when they actually realise, okay, yeah, Miss William, she's down to earth. We can, you know, we can have a laugh with her. But then on the flip side of that, no, we, there's time, there's a time to learn. And then there's a time for banter. And as I said, it's just about, you know, maintaining those professional boundaries and making sure your children are aware of, you know, when it's time, you know, to have a bit of a laugh and a joke and maybe slip into your self-funding a bit more. And when it, you know, we need to get our heads down, there are things that we need to get done. This is a place of learning, you know, so it's about balance for me. I also just want to add, it's really important that non-Black kids see us in our own ethnicity as well. I notice now that like I've taught in a, like I taught way out in Essex, where like you could count the number of Black people. Me and my flatmate at the time was this gay guy and we joke about being the only Black and the only gay in the village because literally we made up the diversity of the, the little village we lived in. And like, but what I realise is the more I'm authentic in my blackness, not only do black kids benefit from it, but non-black kids benefit from it and non-black parents benefit from it. Because what we are starting to show is like, actually, yes, we are different. Different isn't bad. We actually have more in common than not because fundamentally we want the best for your children. I want the best for your child. And we might just come at it slightly different ways, but you are now understanding more about what it means to be, let's say, a Black African woman or a Black Caribbean woman, which can only improve things. And I, I just, I think it's, it's so, so, so important for non-Black kids to see Black authenticity because some of the stuff that they're fed 
you know, through TV and radio about what blackness is. One, it's very one dimensional and a lot of it isn't necessarily true, you know, and we come in, we come in many different shades and sizes and packages and the more authentic we are, the better and the, the, the better understanding and acceptance and inclusion we're going to have without losing ourselves. Yeah, there's actually a stat floating around at the moment, Steph, but I can't remember it for the UK. But um, in the USA, they say that young people who are taught by black teachers are 30, up to or around 13% more likely to enroll in university or higher education. And that's that's been floating around um, of the last week, actually, on social media about how black teachers do improve the outcomes, not just not just for black um, young people but all young people as well and so you know we are we are a superpower we are a force to be reckoned with and if you think about whether or not it's from like a trauma-based historical experience like the way in which we value education and as a sociologist I've always um you know I've I've always heard and fought but taken in that narrative of working twice as hard and the whole idea that actually my mum probably is working class but with middle class values in terms of what society deems as how we look at education and how we look at our role um, in society in terms of moving up there was never there was never a stagnation in my house you know we value progress we value growth we value learning where's your book where's your book (laughs) where's your book that's it like I say to my kids now like you got one job bro you got one job to learn as a young person you've got nothing else to do everything else is a luxury so you know that strive for excellence from whatever it wherever it comes from whether it's from being considered and not I'm I'm saying not we are but being considered the lowest members of society but actually those backgrounds, whether it's at home or in the UK, has also fostered such an entrepreneurial spirit. There, there is nothing about being black that represents feeling entitled. You know, we work and we believe in working for for what we want, what we deserve, what we're good for. So, you know, would you believe we've been here for almost an hour already? And so, unfortunately, I do have to like wrap up with the last question. But I think it would be really it would be really nice to hear from you ladies like what do you desire as future of education for our young black children and I say the future actually I don't not just for our young black children you can speak about it from any perspective from government right down to the classroom um and and for anyone listening who is in the classroom considering leaving because that that's the thing says she um thinking that they want a career change for our TAs for our teachers who are not stepping into senior leadership you know what are your final words of encouragement so first question or first part of the question the future of education in terms of blackness and um words of encouragement Lanisha yeah um so I'll just start by saying it's been so encouraging to see how schools are at actively working on diversifying the curriculum I mean these Gen Zers are woke you know and it's forced leaders to take a really good look at the content and making sure that it's reflective 
of the children who consume it. So I'm happy to see where this goes, you know, will it remain consistent and, you know, how education sort of develops through this sort of tackling anti-racism within the classroom movement. And then my advice would be, would be, you know, always maintain your integrity. It's difficult in schools. It can be really difficult. So maintain that integrity, speak up for yourself, ask questions. And then lastly, invest in yourself, you know, make time for yourself, self-care, you know, read books, podcasts. I've recently joined Quick Plug Hair, a program called Aspiring Heads. And it's been so beneficial to me in my professional journey. I'm surrounded Sorry, Lanisha, by... shout out to Nadine Bernard, who is shout doing things in leadership. She is doing bits. So I've joined the recent cohort and I've learned, I've developed so, so much in this time. What she is doing and her network, what they're providing to aspiring leaders is phenomenal. So shout out to them. And yeah, just network, 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 you know, cast your net as far as far and wide as you can. And, you know, just learn, learn from others who have been there, you know, and all the best. <laughs> Oh, I'll go. I, ooh, the future of education, so much needs to change. We've essentially had the same system for like 200 years. It's like, it's so outdated. And, you know, just to echo what Anisha said, I'm glad that more and more schools are putting money behind really looking at the curriculum, decolonizing, thinking about equality, diversity, and inclusion. I really want to see for all children, like, re- just real curriculum change. I feel like, you know, for the last two schools, I've actually three schools I've worked in, they've taken a more progressive approach to education. And I can see that even though it's kind of in its early phases, I can see the impact it's having. You know, the jobs that exist now didn't exist 10 years ago. The jobs that are going to exist in 10 years, we don't know what the world's going to be like. So this very limited, you're either academic or this kind of approach to education is so, so, so outdated. And even as a teacher, I spoke at a school recently, I said, I'm, I'm a teacher and I'm telling you, if you flop your GCSEs, it's not the end of the world. There are so many ways to be successful. You can go back and retake, you can do things differently. So many ways to be successful. So I, I want us to, my thing is to stop telling kids that without your, your numbers and letters on a page, you're more than that. Education is more than that. It, it is not just about that. And I want more and more schools to, to be brave in really pushing that message. I guess my my words of advice for fellow teachers is reach out to us who are in the industry because we are here. And and I don't think I could have felt more supported in the last five years of my career if it wasn't for kind of like our black women in education kind of um, WhatsApp group. And every so often I'll text in there. I'm about to end a kid. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to fight a colleague. And the advice and the warmth that I've got back, but also the networking. And what I'm really loving is seeing other Black educators really supporting other Black educators. There's this myth out there, and I I do think it's a myth that we as Black people can't be unified. We're not a homogenous group and we think differently. They're Black conservatives, they're Black liberals, there's Black everything. But I, I am just seeing within the industry more and more and more support. And yeah, shout out to aspiring heads like, the work that they do is phenomenal but do talk to people do reach out apply for the job and keep applying 
and talk to people who need to maybe feed that someone needs to check your letter, do it. Don't ever feel like if you can do 50% of it, apply. Because that's what people who are not black do. Apply, 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 keep going, keep pushing because it will happen. And the more and more of us that push that ceiling and break that ceiling, the better for the kids that are coming up through school and the better for fellow colleagues. I feel like I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something, but then go back on it. So we, we, we shouldn't have to be resilient. We shouldn't have to work harder, but actually we're going to have to be resilient and we're going to have to be enthusiastic because actually it's so much bigger than you or me. It, it, I truly believe that in schools where children can show up as themselves, those are the schools where adults get to show up as themselves. Um, and so I think for the future of education, I would really like us to lead with the why. Um, and I say that because ultimately, um, as Steph said, you know, there are so many ways to be successful. There are so many different careers. For me, I'm just passionate about young people understanding that success doesn't necessarily look like being a runner because you happen to be Jamaican and um, Hussein Bolt can run fast. Like it has to be, school has to be this place where young people get to go almost like blank canvases and they get to experience so many different things. They get to experience writers and, and, and maths and careers opportunities that, that, that actually they're like, rah, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be and get to try it. And maybe it works and maybe it doesn't work out. What you don't want is schools that are just like factories where kids are taken to, you know, you know, even when it comes down to leadership teams have to question themselves in terms of who gets to go on trips. When, when, when teachers set up these opportunities for 30 children in a school of, I don't know, 1,200, who gets to go on those trips? Is there a trend? What is the thought pattern behind that? Because actually, again, those are opportunities that are missed for specific children. Need to really be thinking about that. When we talk about diversifying the curriculum, okay, diversify your curriculum, but who are your heads of department? Like, what opportunities are you giving for people who are of the global majority to lead on their curriculum rather than getting somebody who's not necessarily that to then press down on teachers to do this unit of work and that unit of work like it has to be thought of in a way more holistically uh, uh there has to be a way more holistic approach to it so I think for me it's that and I'm just going to shout out aspiring heads as well because I've done the program and I did it I can't even remember when I did it but Nadine is on my speed dial like that's the support I've had um you know separate from whatever school you're in that's that's been my support system that's been the person checking my um my applications that's been the person talking me through difficult things and actually having that it's not just about who she is and what she does but it's about that idea that there is light at the end of the tunnel a lot of the time you talk to people who are on this journey you know people come and talk to me I can only give them so much support because I still have my own struggles and I'm not saying that Nadine doesn't but actually she is the head who is not only a head teacher but she's leading a successful company she's empowering other people and she does it with grace and a smile on her face and actually she that that for us is is something that we need we don't want you don't always want to talk about that person who's like yeah it is hard you know I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's actually, yes, it's hard, but I'm enthusiastic still. These are some of the solutions. And that for me is just phenomenal. Awesome. 
my heart is so full. I I don't care. I don't think there is a single industry insider that will happen on this podcast where literally your heart just feels like it wants to burst with the passion for the work that you do because our work as educators is so, so important because we're not just talking about our work as in being employed as Black women. We're talking about the future generations, the workforces that we're bringing forward, the workforces that we're educating, and not just Black, as in part of the change that we're going to see in terms of eradicating microaggressions, in terms of being more inclusive, is around the work that we, we, Black women, do in these schools for everybody. And my heart is just so full, honestly. And I kind of like in closing the episode in terms of words um what what do I see for the future or what would I like to see for the future and advice tied in one is in my very first job post-graduation I joined um like the BAME network and the phrase that I will never forget is if not me then who if not you then who And so when I think about the reason why I entered the education system as a teacher, we spend so many hours with these young people. Like, who do I want to be spending so many hours with my children? Like, who is that person? What are they bringing to my child, to your child's life? And so if you know that you have the smarts and the heart for it, do it. Do it like do it and you know in in terms of what we say to young people and what I've had to say to myself in my career journey is you don't have to be a teacher forever you you can do a good stint and it will be of value and the value that you drop you you just you just will not know the impact that it has my mum was a teenage mum a solo parent and my very first teacher in reception, Miss Butler, she said to my mum, this child's going to university. I don't even think my mum, I'm like the first of my generation to go to university. I don't even think my mum really had, she had the vision, but I don't think it was as clear to her. And that was one phrase, whether it was throwaway, whether it was true belief, that harnessed a whole journey for me, my sisters, and now my children, and as a teacher, so many, so many other children. And so if not you, then who do it, do it. Um, Like I've had such a warming conversation with you guys. Um, Thank you so, so much for joining the Black Women Working Podcast and sharing your journey and your experiences. And I feel like we struck a really good balance between the highs, the lows and, you know, what we'd like to see for for our industry. And so to everybody, thank you for listening. I will definitely be tagging our guests today, Steph, Jamila, Lanisha, we've shouted out Nadine and there are so many other um, Black teacher networks and, and training providers if you're interested. So like with all of our workplaces, all of our workspace, use your network, reach out, speak to each other, support each other. And um, until next time, 
please do follow our social media at bwwpodcastuk um, and keep the conversation going with the same hashtag bwwpodcastuk that's mostly on instagram twitter you can also find us on linkedin and if you have a specific question or message you can email us on blackwomenworkinguk gmail.com um i can't thank you enough i'm glowing this is a wonderful 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 wednesday thank you ladies until next time bye